Welcome to Bible in the News. This is David Billington discussing the leadership of Europe and the changing face of the European Union and Russia. This week's Economist cover depicts a black hole with the wording, until politicians actually do something about the world economy, be afraid. The cover article begins, unless politicians act more boldly, the world economy will keep heading towards a black hole. In dark days, people naturally seek glimmers of hope, but those hopes are likely to fade for three reasons. According to the article, one of the big problems are the leaders of the Eurozone. It says, most of the blame for this should be heaped on the leaders of the Eurozone, still the biggest immediate danger. The leadership is lacking conviction and courage. The article continues, at a time of enormous problems, the politicians seem lilliputin. That's the real reason to be afraid. There's no doubt that, the, that Europe is in crisis. But is it the politicians' fault? Europe is really being sucked into a vortex that nobody is able to control. However, it is a designed vortex. The architects of the European Union envisioned and designed this from the start. In 1997, John Laughlin wrote in the book The Tainted Source, The Undemocratic Origins of the Euro European Idea, that <clears throat> to create a monetary union in Europe is to transfer a very important executive power from the nation-state to Europe. The transfer would be so great that the member states of Europe would cease to be self-governing entities. They would no longer have the right to govern themselves by taking decisions about the economy independently. Although a single currency might not formally create a new state, therefore, it would create one in fact. It is the declared intention of Chancellor Kohl to use the single currency to make European Union irreversible. This suggests that member states are not expected to be able to revoke their consent to the monetary union. As the president of the Bundesbank has said, the path to monetary union is a path of no return. John Laughlin also quotes Karl van Meert, then the European Commissioner for, the comp for Competition, from a publication on December 29, 1995, which says, the single currency is a strongly federalizing element. The opponents of a federal Europe are right about that. It is my conviction that the euro will lead to a European economic government. Fifteen years later, this is exactly what is happening. The politicians have little choice. Countries like Greece are stuck between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, they can relinquish sovereignty, and on the other hand, they could pull out of the euro something that they simply don't have the resources to do. The longer they wait, the worse it gets. The argument of the economist is that the politicians better do something, and if they don't, we should be scared. This type of message actually prepares the populace with fear to surrender to the idea of relinquishing some sovereignty to a European central government. In the next chapter... John Laughlin went on to write about what he called the Third Rome. He began the chapter, It is seldom realized that the plan to integrate the states of Western Europe around a single cur currency, grandose though it is, is only part of an even larger plan. European integration is not an exclusively Western European affair. Indeed, 
the very purpose of suggesting the institutional restructuring of Western Europe around a hard core, according to the plan's German authors, is to permit the creation of a common Western European foreign and security policy, which will in turn be based on a lasting partnership with Russia. The German government has repeatedly stressed that it is the advocate of pan-European, not just Western European thinking. He also wrote that the idea is then to construct a pan-European security architecture with Russia and that monetary union in the West was a necessary prerequisite for the larger vision of a single political-military system for the whole continent. Another one of the lead articles in The Economist this week is Putin Forever, Unfortunately. Yes, it seems that the cold, calculating Putin is coming back to supreme power. If he wins the election, which is almost a foregone conclusion, he could potentially stay in power until 2024. Over the last few years, Putin has groomed his tough Russian nationalistic image and his cult personality status. He is a man who loves power, and over the next 12 years, he will make the most of it. Indeed, he is the type of person that will set about to build an image empire. You may recall the words of John Thomas from over 150 years ago, which have been quoted on Bible in the News. The future movements of Russia are notable signs of the times, because they are predicted in the scriptures of truth. The Russian autocracy in its plenitude, and on the verge of its dissolution, is the image of Nebuchadnezzar standing upon the mountains of Israel, ready to be smitten by the stone, when Russia makes its grand move for the building up of its image empire, then let the reader know that the end of all things as at present constituted is at hand. The long-expected but stealthy advent of the King of Israel will be on the eve of becoming a fact. Ezekiel 38 is a depiction of when the image of Nebuchadnezzar moves upon the mountains of Israel and is smitten by the stone. Instead of being a contest between the stone and the image, as in Daniel 2, Ezekiel 38 is a contest between the Son of Man and Gog. The Son of Man is a representative of the Messiah of Israel and his saints. See Matthew 24, verse 30. In other words, the core of the little stone power of Daniel 2. This is the same Son of Man who prophesied to the dry bones in Ezekiel 37 and brought them to national life. In Ezekiel 38, he prophesies against Gog. Gog is a person who in the chapter is referred to by the masculine singular pronominal suffix, prophesy against him, Ezekiel 38 verse 2, 38 verse 14, and 39 verse 1. Ezekiel 38 verse 2 in the revised version reads, Son of man, set thy face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. The RV treats Rosh as a proper name, as do some JPS translations, Green's, Young's Literal, and the New King James Version. Key lexicons do as well. Jesenius's lexicon says of Rosh in Ezekiel 38, a proper noun of a northern nation mentioned with Tubal and Meshech, undoubtedly the Russians. Davidson's lexicon, proper name of a northern nation supposed to be the Russians. And Langenstein's Hebrew-English dictionary, a proper name of a Scythian people, Russians. Gog is an emperor. 
he is the Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Chubal, or as John Thomas put it, Emperor of all the Russias. However, he also has dominion over the land of Magog, or the core of Western Europe. John Thomas wrote, There is something important in all this. It affirms that he is sovereign of Magog as well as Prince of all the Russias, for there, at the time of the prophecy, is his proper dominion. So it is with great interest that we watch the changing face of Europe, nations losing their sovereignty and the coming to power of a powerful iron-like ruler in Russia. We also see a common European and Russian foreign policy against Israel and in favor of the Palestinian Arab state. All these things demonstrate that the stage is being set for that final contest between the Son of Man and Gog upon the mountains of Israel. Gog is preparing, and so must we, if we are to be found watching and waiting when the Master comes. Come back next week, God willing, to BibleInTheNews.com.